this is Sarah Gotting. And this is Russell Klum. Welcome to Church of the City Teaching Podcast. Hey, have you heard? Church of the City is making a move in 2020. Check out our podcast episode called Our Next Chapter for more details. We're really excited and looking forward for you to join us. My name is Russell. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Church of the City as well, and I'm really grateful to be with you this morning. Um, We have a little bit of a challenge ahead of us because not only do I need to help us walk through and understand and play with and try to walk away with something meaningful from a piece of biblical text, but I also have to explain the plot line of The Matrix to you this morning. If you've not seen The Matrix before, um, let me introduce you to it. If If you're gonna watch it, just so you know, there's some spoilers in this next little bit. Um, if it's been a minute since you've seen it, let me refresh for you uh, what this, this movie's all about. Now, the concept of this particular storyline, um, arguably maybe the best film made in human history. Um, you can disagree if you like. Man, you guys are spunky this morning. Obviously, I said that because I knew it would get that reaction from you. Um, the plot line is this. Humanity is at a whole new stage, and yet, as the audience, you're not really aware of that to begin with. You're in this world, watching these characters move and act and relate to one another in seemingly kind of normal ways. Until it dawns on you, um, at some point along the way, that what has been created for your viewing pleasure and for the pleasure of the people who are in the story is a computer program that every human being is a part of. And the experiences that people have um, inside the computer program mimic real life. And what's happened is an epic battle between artificial intelligence and humans has taken place in the past, and artificial intelligence won. And as they won, um, they plugged every human being into this massive computer called the mainframe, and they entertained humanity um, simply by putting our brains into this massive um, storyline that they call Earth. Now, the, the real catch to this whole thing is there are people who are aware of the fact that what is being experienced isn't real. It's something called the Matrix. And those who are aware of it have um, unplugged themselves or been unplugged by other people, um, and their whole mission is to help humanity see what's actually going on. Now, here's the, here's the catch. What's happened outside of the Matrix after this massive war is a world that is dystopian. It's a mess. It's, it's not great. But arguably, um, people, humans, um, have this like, built-in thing that we'd like to experience the world the way it really is, not the way that maybe it's been created or the way that someone's telling us a story ought to be made. So the whole plot line revolves around these characters who are engaged in this process of helping people inside the matrix see the fact that what they're in is a computer, um, their mind is, and they want to unplug them. Now, all that's background for this point, okay? And we'll get there, I promise. This will make sense. I I hope it makes sense. Uh, If it doesn't, you can talk to me later about it. There, There is this interchange among those who have been freed from the matrix. And as they begin living life outside the matrix in this very difficult environment, uh, this dystopian world that has been uh, completely changed because of the war, um, there are some people who are 
wanting to go back into the matrix permanently. These people can go in and out of the matrix. They can engage the computer program if they want to and go in and be there temporarily. But there are some characters who desperately just want to go back no matter what. And this one character is named Cypher. He makes a deal. He makes a deal with the AI computer program to, um, to get plugged back in. No, you're laughing at me. I know. I get it. It's, it's wild. But trust me when I say, for me anyway, this connects. He makes a deal to be plugged back into the matrix. Um, but it is, has a great cost to it. He has to, to get back into the matrix. He has to deliver the hero of the story to AI. And if he delivers the hero of the story to AI, then AI has agreed uh, that this individual, Cypher, can go back into the matrix. And there's this, this conversation, this, this, this moment between Cypher and AI when they're having a conversation, and it's a facsimile, it's in the matrix. And this, this individual, this character, Cypher, is eating a steak. And he knows it's not real. He knows it's just a computer telling him that it's a steak. And he's in this conversation with AI about the one, the hero of the story. And he says about the hero, can you imagine being him, the hero of the story? Can you imagine being, they call him, the one? The one who's supposed to free everybody, the one who's supposed to take down AI, the one who's supposed to destroy the computer program, all of it. And it's just, you see this like evolution on his face as he's making sense of his decision in this moment. He looks at Neo, the one, and sees it just must be a trip to be that kind of hero. And I don't want anything to do with it. I want the fake. I want the artificial stake. I want to be happy, blissful, and blind again. And the rest of the storyline is this tug of war between AI acting its will out through this character, Cypher, against the hero, Neo. And in this, in this interchange between Cypher and AI, I think there's something really, really instructive about what's going on in the biblical text. As we think on what's going on as Luke lays out the story of Jesus for us, he's arguing that there is a new hero in the human story. A hero that is quite different than all the other heroes. He's not a god in the way that others have been gods who conquers nations and makes people his subjects. He's not an emperor who has risen to power through a bloodline that has given him prestige and power and prominence that had to be fought over to get. He came as a child. A child who was prophetically spoken over to say this individual will topple kingdoms. This one will frustrate the powerful. It will take down the wealthy. This hero is a king that doesn't look like the kings that we've known. And now we're in the storyline, as we've seen, just in these first few moments of of Luke's writing. We see the transformation from a, a baby into the beginning of a ministry by an adult. But here's the wild thing. The incarnation the God in flesh and bones, the God walking into the human story, while many of us have been around Christianity for some time and we just kind of accept it for what it is, to walk back into the human story in the state that it's in, being broken, for God to put flesh and bones on, to take off the godliness that would have prevented him from participating in the human story the way that God did, is wild. And I actually kind of resonate with Cypher in this 
Can you imagine being the one? Can you imagine being Jesus of Nazareth, who's been told by your mom, by the way, I need to tell you something about the time I learned that I was going to become your mom. There was an angel. I didn't know what was going on. I was afraid. By the way, the individual who's been your father in your life isn't your blood father. Something miraculous happened. I became pregnant. We had you. I was told by my relative Elizabeth that you were going to topple nations. Don't know what to tell you about that. Can you imagine the, the amount of mental energy that would have to go into being the Messiah? Into being Jesus? Can you imagine what it might take to internalize the reality If our theology is that Jesus was 100% human, it means he didn't get the special privilege, just acceptance piece of like, yeah, I'm going to be okay and be cool with my story. Like us, I can imagine these waves of just it dawning on him that this is a different path than every other person has been on who's ever walked on earth. Can you imagine the weight of that kind of story? And I resonate with Cypher in this, that there's a part of me that not only has a hard time understanding that, like, can you imagine being the one? But maybe we flip-flop this a bit, and I can imagine being inside of the mind of Jesus of Nazareth, questioning, do I really want to do this? Is this really what I want out of my life? Do I really want to live into the story that my mom has told me? And already something kind of crazy has happened when he was baptized And heaven opened up, and God pronounces that this is my child. So far in the storyline of Luke, we we actually have just these small glimpses of the extent to which Jesus understands the fullness of who he is and what he is. Now, I'm not saying he was oblivious and blind to it. I think just the opposite. I think the point in the storyline we are right now, where he's roughly 28 or 29 years old, it's probably landed on him pretty heavy. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't see him doing the things he does had he not accepted this. But as he's accepted this, we don't know that process. We don't know what it took. And it's at this particular point, this particular moment, at the very beginning of this public phase of his life where we see it quite, in quite detail what's going on in the life of Jesus, that it's challenged. And it's challenged straight away from those who would say, this is, this is not good. This is not what I want out of the human story. Now, if you have been following along with us in the storyline of Luke, I need to make um, you aware that we're going to actually move really quickly through a, a big chunk of Scripture that we're not going to address very deep uh, today. Some of you understand what I'm talking about. Um, the passage that we're looking at today includes the genealogy of Jesus. Um, now, I'm not averse to having a sermon about the genealogy of Jesus, um, I just didn't think you would like that very much. So um, we're going to actually come back to the genealogy of Jesus, but here's what I want to say about it. Um, Luke, if you recall, he's writing to an audience outside of the Jewish circle or Jewish community. He's writing to those who aren't aware um, of the storyline and the traditions and the genealogy of the Jewish community. And so his his genealogy is very straight, straight-laced, very fast, very... Low in detail, um, just giving a list of names. 
And the intent here, I think, if I understand properly what's going on and why Luke would do this, I think what Luke is trying to accomplish is he's trying to establish what's going to come later in the story, that there is credibility and there's lineage to who Jesus is, but it, it isn't what's expected. Now, we'll come back to it um, in a bit, but just hold on to the fact that what is trying to be accomplished by Luke is saying that Jesus has some credibility. But then, immediately at the very end of this, that Jesus has his credibility. He's Jewish through and through. We get this very challenging passage. We get this passage that, i just pre, pre-warn you, that some of you immediately are going to dismiss or previously have dismissed. And you've dismissed it for reasons like, aren't we more intelligent than believing this particular story? Haven't we understood that this kind of miraculous encounter couldn't happen? Haven't we gotten to the spot where we actually don't need to entertain the thought of having evil personified in the form of Satan talking to good incarnate in the form of Jesus in this kind of epic battle moment? And let me just offer something to you, something that's been a helpful tool in my journey. Not trying to get away from a passage like this, um, because we over-intellectualize it is really important, but it's challenging to do if you find yourself in that particular perspective. So there's a tool um, that many philosophers use um, when they're addressing different communities and trying to understand other communities. It's called suspending your disbelief. It's for a moment saying, I really want to not believe what's going on here, but I'll suspend that for a second, and I'll, I'll entertain it again. I'm going to ask you to, to lean into entertaining this particular account again. In a trivial kind of way, we do the exact same thing with movies and books all the time. Storyline and a plot that's written in a world that doesn't exist, we suspend what we believe about our real world so that we can find ourselves in it. Now that's a trivial pursuit. I would say what we're wrestling with here is something far more important. We're talking about our relationship with the scriptures and what we do or don't think about them. It becomes important for us to at least give some space to accept what's going on here, to toy with it a bit, and then maybe to have some takeaways that might make some sense. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. We're in Luke chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, that's all right. Um, provide for you on the screen. I am a huge fan of having your own Bible with you, so if you do want to bring a Bible, no one's going to like tell you you can't come in. No one's going to laugh at you. Uh, go ahead and bring a Bible. You're welcome to. Go and use your phone. It's a great thing, too. Um, it's a great tool to have that with you when you want it or need it. So we're in Luke chapter 4. Pick it up. Verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, one of the most obvious sentences in Scripture, he was very hungry. Um, This particular passage is one that you're probably familiar with a bit. One that you have heard maybe when you were younger. Uh, Maybe it's one that you've heard people teach on different moments, different experiences in different churches. But let me set the scene for you here. Jesus so far has been not public. What I mean by that is he's lived, he's been around, but we don't have a lot of great detail from the scriptures according, according to the scriptures on what he's done and who he is. We just get these small glimpses along the way. This is the beginning of us getting a highly detailed account of roughly two and a half or three years of his life on earth that culminates in his unjust trial and unjust murder. What we have in this particular account that inaugurates this ministry of Jesus is him doing something that's pretty peculiar. 
He's just been down by the Jordan River, if you recall. And the person who's, what scripture says about him, making the, the uh, paths straight and the hills flat in order to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, a man by the name of John the Baptist, has been telling people that things are going to change. The kingdom of God is coming to earth. And it's coming in the form of a king. And what we saw in, in Luke is a very small glimpse of the first moment we start seeing some of that displayed in living detail when Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. And like I said a moment ago, heaven opens up and God pronounces, this is my child. It's that moment that seems to be the key for the beginning of this ministry. But Jesus doesn't run right to the temple and start teaching people. He doesn't you know, put on a positional um, robe and say, I'm now the king and you guys need to listen to me. The first thing Jesus does, being led by the Holy Spirit, is he leaves the Jordan River Valley, which isn't a highly populated place, and he goes somewhere even less populated, the Judean wilderness. Now, the Judean wilderness is this crazy place. Um, it, it, it's basically the span of dirt between the Jordan River Valley and Jerusalem. Um, between the two is about 20 miles of distance, but it's, it also runs about 80 miles north to south. It's a big territory right in the middle of Palestine. And it is full of hills and valleys, places where people um, have not spent much time because it is desolate. There's not a lot of water normally, but if it rains, it's an area that flash floods. Um, it's not, you can't cultivate it. There's not enough vegetation for any animals to live. It's good in the history of Israel has been, it's the place that the Israelites have hid when armies come and they've got nowhere else to go. So if you think of it, it's kind of like in Lord of the Rings when they go to Helm's Deep. Like, this is our last stand place. And it's reserved for that. Like, that's all it's really good for. There's not a lot of other good uses of this, of this place. And this is where the Holy Spirit leads Jesus. And it's here that he decides during this moment, and I'm, I'm imagining this is a Holy Spirit work, he fasts. He doesn't eat for 40 days. I mean, just on the human level, I mean, missing a meal is really, really tough for a lot of us in our society. Missing a whole day's worth of meals, that's a, that's, a, that's a word. That's a challenge. Getting to three days, I had a conversation with a good friend of mine. Getting to three days, um, just the other day we were talking about this, is really, really hard work of not eating. 40 days is over a month of choosing not to eat. Now, there's been a lot of debate over whether or not this is a, uh, a miraculous thing in and of itself. Could someone really survive in the wilderness without eating for 40 days? Is this just a huge amount of will um, on Jesus' part? It's pretty unclear. But what is clear here is Jesus is doing something to engage his body, his mind, his soul, all in some kind of Holy Spirit-filled way, where he is choosing his first act as now this inaugurated Messiah to leave people behind, to go out in the wilderness and fast. Forty days. And Luke is so painfully obvious just to make the point He's really hungry. The text moves on. So the devil says to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, pause here for a second. This experience of Jesus out in the wilderness by itself would be really challenging. For anyone to come back from this experience after 40 days, 
and walk back into society, it would take them some time to build their strength back up. They're going to be exhausted. They're going to be tired. They're going to be depleted, probably atrophied. Their muscles will have eaten themselves. Um, They'll be very, very weak. To add to that whole experience, we see this moment the first time in Luke where we have the devil arrive. Now, again, I don't know what your relationship is with the devil. I don't know what you think of the devil. I don't know if you believe in the devil. But Luke here is building an assumed reality inside of his narrative. That those in his audience would understand who he's talking about and what agenda this particular player has in the storyline of Jesus, in the storyline of Luke. It's a throwback to the origin story of humans in Genesis the individual who had a conversation with Eve and convinced her that she knew better than God knew what was good for her and good for Adam. The person who has consistently been at war with God. The one who shows up in the book of Job and has a conversation with God about Job and about his fortunes and about his commitment to God. It's this individual who consistently participates in the breakdown of the goodness of humanity. And here, what's being displayed is kind of a a pinnacle moment. At the incarnation, at the arrival of God in flesh and bones on earth, at the beginning of this ministry, at a point when Jesus is specifically very weak physically, the devil arrives and begins to tempt Jesus. Now, from the text, it's a little unclear on whether or not this tempting happened at the very, very end of the 40 days or happened during the 40 days. It's kind of, it says both ways here. I'm, I'm in the camp of, I think this is happening kind of along the way of Jesus fasting during the 40 days. And the conversation detail that Luke has gotten here starts with the devil saying to Jesus, you're really hungry. Why don't you eat something? You're tired. You're out here on your, on your own. You're vulnerable. If you really are the Son of Man, which is a catchphrase out of the book of Daniel regarding the Messiah, if you really are the Messiah, if you really are the hero of the story, why don't you just tell these stones to become bread and eat something? Now, this particular conversation that Satan and Jesus are having here, it goes right to the heart of what's happening in the incarnation itself. Jesus is human, and he's hungry, and Satan's aware of it, and it might feel very basic, but Satan leverages a really powerful motivator inside of humans, our stomachs. And he says, why don't you just prove who you are right now? Just just prove that you are the Son of Man. Just prove that you're God. Prove that you are the Messiah. And Jesus retorts. He refuses, and he quotes scripture, and he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. Now, a lot of people have said, and I think rightly so, that in the face of temptation, a takeaway here of this passage would be something like, have some awareness of what's going on in the scriptures so you can face your own temptations. That's actually really good teaching. And unfortunately, I think that hand is overplayed a bit in this passage, because far uh, more is going on in this passage and giving us trite, simple memory verses to fight temptation as humans. See, what's going on here, what's beginning to to show its hand, is that the devil wants no more than for Jesus to betray being 
the Messiah. He wants him to do a miracle. The temptation here on Jesus' part is not to eat food. The temptation here is for Jesus to deny the fact that he is human. To deny the incarnation. It would take a violation of the incarnation itself. Jesus doing a miracle to serve his own well-being in order to eat something. And Satan knows that. He's trying to trip up Jesus. Not because he just wants him to get some food and that would be a weird thing that would somehow trip Jesus up. But because he wants Jesus to violate his very identity. To come to, to come to the realization that I'm so hungry, I will give up on this pursuit of being human and suffering the way humans have suffered and experiencing the world the way humans have experienced the world. And so Jesus does push back. He says, man, humans, don't live on bread alone. There's more to this, Jesus is saying, than getting a bite to eat. So Satan persists. Pick it up in verse 5. The devil led him to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I love this particular one because I feel like it's so like movie-esque, right? Like they're having a conversation in the wilderness and they're just, just something simple, turn these rocks to, to bread and they're all kind of like there. And then probably some kind of cool special effect happens and the devil takes Jesus with him to a high place. I don't know what high place it is. I mean, highest on earth is Mount Everest. Maybe it's that. I don't know. Maybe the first one's to, to crest Mount Everest. We could argue for that. I don't know where they go. But they go somewhere where in a moment, again, miraculously, powerfully, supernaturally, Satan shows Jesus all of humanity all at once. All the kingdoms, all the power, all the prestige, all the wealth, all of it in a moment. And he rightfully says, this is all mine. That is exactly true. Through the narrative of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, what we see is that the devil, Satan, is the prince of the earth. The one who has taken control in the midst of our rebellious acts against God. And he says to Jesus, I'll give it to you. I'll give you every bit of this. Just worship me. Now again, like a very clear uh, temptation. And I think it rightfully so, we've concluded, well, what Jesus says here is true. Like, we don't worship anybody but God. Fantastic. And Jesus says, I'm not going to worship anybody but God. I think that's a great takeaway. And yet, it misses the heart of what this is, what's going on here and what's so tempting in this particular offer. I mean, it, it kind of seems obvious. Like, of course, Jesus isn't going to bow down this, to Satan. That, that's never going to happen. But if it wasn't a possibility, then it wouldn't be a temptation. So the question has to be asked, what's so tempting, what's so alluring about this particular proposal by the devil to Jesus? And if you think on this for a second, what becomes painfully clear 
is if Jesus has any awareness of the kind of kingdom he is bringing, if he's been listening to his mom and listened to Elizabeth, and he's actually listened to the storyline out of the Old Testament of what the Messiah was going to do, and if he was internalizing that and coming to terms with it, what he understood is the road ahead of him was a road of pain, a road of suffering, a road of loneliness, a road that would ultimately end somehow. Maybe he had a perspective, maybe he didn't have perspective, I'm unclear, but ultimately end in him dying. Standing there on top of the world, looking at all of humanity, he's, he's been given a deal. You don't have to go that way. You can do this differently. You don't have to go through all that pain. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to be human. What's being offered to Jesus is an escape plan. I don't know about you, but so often in life, I want an escape plan. Last week, I handed in my last paper of my last class for, hopefully, my whole educational career. Yeah, right? Thank you. Wasn't expecting that, but what, what was so difficult over the last couple of weeks has been my brain telling me, you can just quit. Can someone just come up with a way for me to quit? Can I come up with a good enough excuse to just quit? And writing a paper is nowhere close to being the Messiah of humanity. Internally, I know the pressure of wanting to escape from life. We all have these moments when it would just be so much easier if someone just said, this is the way out. You're suffering a lot. Your world's upside down. You're in a lot of pain, emotionally, or physically, or spiritually. And it'd be so much easier if someone just came up and said, here's a better offer. It'll only cost you a little bit. Just sell out. Give up and sell out, and you're going to be fine. What's so alluring about this is the avoidance of pain. Pain is endemic being human. The offer being made to Jesus again is to betray his humanity and accept a supernatural exit strategy. And Jesus says no. I won't. I won't worship anybody but God alone. So Satan persists. Pick it up in verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you and guard you carefully. They will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now here again, Satan makes a proposal. I hope, again, it's some amazing special effect. They leave Mount Everest, and they go back to Jerusalem, and they're standing at the highest point of the temple, looking down on what is the epicenter of religious worship for the Jewish community. The devil says, let me quote some scripture to you, Jesus. Prophetically about you, out of the Psalms, it is said that if you stumble, if you fall, God will take care of you. He will take the most powerful beings that have been created, angels, and protect you. You have nothing to worry about. And Jesus says, classic fashion, do not put the Lord your God to 
the test. Now, again, I think amazing takeaway here. In really simple terms, when we have this internal dialogue or maybe spiritual um, competition inside of us going on about what we can do or should do with our life, and we're confronted with the reality of putting God to test. Okay, God, I'm going to test you on this. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to bargain with you. I'm going to test you in whatever manner life has presented itself. Really simple takeaway here is that's an inappropriate kind of relationship with God. And a way to deal with it is to internalize a piece of scripture like this and say, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to test God. And yet again, a surface reading of this particular text, I think, betrays the fact that we're not looking closely enough at what's actually happening between these two individuals. The devil gets really, really smart here. In an attempt to, to pull Jesus into the offer, he takes prophetic language about him from the scriptures and says, this is your story. You're not going to get hurt. You'll be fine. Just throw yourself off of here. Prove once and for all at the center of worship at the temple in Jerusalem that you are the Messiah. At the temple, Satan is saying, do the kind of miracle that nobody can refute. The stories that will be told about you if you do this here, do this now, do this my way, no one will be able to argue against it. From here, whoever is here today, they will take the story with them and they will tell their friends and their families about you who fell off the height of the temple. We have no idea how we got up there in the first place. And angels showed up and protected him, validating the fact that you are Messiah. The road that Jesus takes to unravel the mystery of the Messiah is the kind of road that only a human can walk. The kind of road that is slow, that is painful, that is riddled with misunderstandings, that has a lot of people around him questioning who he is and what he came for. Furthermore, the road that Jesus takes to establish his messiahship is a road at the edge of society, not at the epicenter. A road among people who are hurting and broken, not those who are in control and power. Furthermore, the road that Jesus takes to establish himself being the Messiah is a road that can be denied. And that's important. For the Messiah to be the Messiah, the way that God wants the Messiah to show up and arrive on earth, demands that people can say, no, I don't believe it. I don't accept it. Because... If it were anything other than that, we would lose our option to have free will. We would lose our option to make a choice. So if in a massive display of miraculous power, heaven rips open, angels show up and save Jesus, all of a sudden, everyone who was there would no longer have choice about Jesus, who he is and what he is. It would have been fast. It would have been effective. It's a question I've had for a long time. As soon as people messed up the story, as soon as we rebelled against God, why doesn't God just come and overwhelm us and fix it? 
And the answer is, God sees too much dignity in people to violate what he's created in us. And for Jesus to say yes to Satan in this moment, to have a massive display of power and miracles, supernatural, heaven-meeting earth in that kind of way, in that kind of place, it would betray the Messiahship altogether. The temptation here is for Jesus, again, to take an easier road towards the eventual establishment of his kingdom. But had he done it that way, the actual substance of the, of the kingdom that he was bringing would have been entirely missed. It would have been for the privileged. It would have been for the religious. It would have been for the powerful. Because they are the ones who would have held all the power, all the keys, all the storyline. And everyone else would have to go along with it because the miracle would be too big to deny. So instead, Jesus says, that's not my path. I'm not going to test God that way. I'm not going to go down the road you're offering here. And then we get this really captivating summary statement from, from Luke. Look at the very end of this text and how Luke concludes this. He says, when the devil had finished all, this, all of his tempting... He left him until an opportune time, meaning he wasn't done with Jesus yet. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Remember, he was led here in the Spirit, and he leaves in the power of the Spirit, which is probably a necessity at this point, being so depleted. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching their synagogues, and everyone praised him. It's amazing how this ends is it didn't take a miracle at the temple. It didn't take overwhelming the kingdoms of earth. It didn't take a violation of the humanity of Jesus for the story to begin to trickle out. It took Jesus being Jesus for that to happen. And that might feel very trite and very simplistic, but we're sitting on this side of the cross and resurrection, trying to interpret back into the story what's actually going on here. These people, in this moment, this is all new for them, the whole story of Jesus. And the story is just beginning to get out. A virgin birth, a prophecy, a baptism that went kind of strange. And then now there's murmuring, murmuring of something going on between this individual and the wilderness while he's fasting with the devil. What we see is the story of the incarnation beginning to get grip inside of the human story. People beginning to perk up and respond to the fact that perhaps this is the one. Now what's striking here, what's striking about this account is that as Jesus interacts with the devil, he had opportunity after opportunity to violate the very heart of the incarnation. And he didn't. I've been wrestling with that this week. Why not? Why not go an easier route? If you are God, you can do whatever you want. So why not take an easier pathway forward? And then it hit me. The reason the story of Jesus is so compelling is because it's filled with so much pain and so much suffering 
so many relationships that aren't perfect. It's because it's so human. The reason that Jesus is so accessible, as opposed to so many other gods in the pantheon of religions out there, is because he showed up and walked among us and refused to use his power to violate humans. And instead, he used his power to participate with us. I don't know how you feel today. I don't know, I don't know what your frame of mind is. I don't know what your story is in specifics today. But I, I could venture a guess that there is a certain measurable quantity of brokenness in your life that you're keenly aware of right now. That you are keenly aware of your humanity. You're keenly aware of the fact that things aren't the way they're supposed to be in your life, in humans, in humanity. You're keenly aware of the fact that you're hurting. It is a God who showed up and joined the hurt that Luke is pointing us towards as he writes. Not a God who hovered above it. Not a God who from above demands that we follow, adore, love, and worship. A God who shows up in the story And through his own decisions, his own pain, his own experiences, says, I love you. I'm with you. I'm for you. For quite some time, the name Emmanuel has been one of the most important names attributed to the Messiah for me personally. As we get close to Christmas, it's a word we use because it's used in the biblical narrative around the arrival of Jesus. It's an incarnation word. The word out of the Hebrew means quite literally, literally, with us is God. That is who Jesus is. And he is with us because what he sees in humanity are people worth walking alongside of, people worth loving from the inside of the narrative people worth suffering with, people worth laughing with, people worth living life with. It is God with humanity that we see in this particular account. And when tempted to violate that, he fought for the story. He fought for you. He fought for me have access to a God who's chosen to show up, to know what it's like to be a pain, a person in pain, to deal with things not being right, and not violate us in the process. So as we move towards Christmas, this particular account, while one that's full of supernatural, it's full of the wild, it's full of things that are a bit daunting and scary. I think it serves us in that it points us back towards the Incarnation. And the question we have to ask, the question we have to wrestle with continually, is it this kind of Messiah that we want to follow? Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Do you want to follow a God who showed up in the storyline with us and use his strength, use his power to protect the incarnation itself, protect our access to a God who's approachable, who's accessible, 
who, like us, dealt with suffering and pain the way we have. You want to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Emmanuel is such a powerful word. God is a gift, not just as an idea, but as a reality, as something that we can actually hold on to. Not just in our minds, but God, that we can hold on to in our bodies. God, thank you for not staying remote and distant. And God, thank you for when you chose to show up and be a part of our stories. God, thank you for not taking the easy way out. Thank you for not giving up on us that way. God, thank you for fighting. Fighting on our behalf to love us well from within the story. God, as I, as I think on it, I know I don't understand what it took on your part to do what you've done. But like Sarah pointed us to today, God, what I find myself dealing with is this very complex set of emotions. God, today as we think on joy, God, may we be filled with the kind of joy that only stems from knowing that you love people deeply. The kind of joy that comes from knowing that you have shown up and you have fought for us. And God, may that joy be married to all the difficult things that we're experiencing as people. Much the same way it was in you, in your life, as you walked on earth. God, may we walk on this path of life with you. May we walk in your dust. May we learn from you. And may we be people who internalize the reality of the incarnation. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.